Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Welcome to As a Woman, Fertility Hormones and Beyond. I'm your host, Dr. Natalie Crawford, and I am a board-certified OBGYN and fertility physician and also co-founder of Fora Fertility in Austin, Texas. With the goal of educating and empowering women, each week on this podcast, I discuss health and fertility and how they relate to your true self. Become a part of the community of collaboration that amplifies others as a woman. I hope you enjoy the episode. Hello, and welcome back to the As a Woman podcast. Today, we are talking all about genetics. When I talk about genetics to patients, there's so many different things that that can mean when it comes to what is important when you're trying to get pregnant, what is important when you are doing IVF, and what is important to your own health and what you should know. So I'm going to review basically just some of the top things you should know genetically. And if you are trying to get pregnant or doing fertility treatment, this is a must listen. Before we dive in, let's go over this week's fertility in the news. The CDC releases what is called the Maternal Mortality Review Committee. And this is data looking at pregnancy and pregnancy-related deaths and trying to see what was preventable. In September, the data from 2017 to 2019, so before COVID, was released. And the big headline is more than 80% of pregnancy-related deaths were preventable. There were big disparities between different races and ethnicities. And really, this is very interesting when you look at it. The majority of pregnancy-related deaths were preventable, and this highlights the need for quality improvement initiatives within states, communities, and hospitals so that people who are pregnant or postpartum can get the right care. That was the key finding. So among pregnancy-related deaths, 22% occurred during the pregnancy, 25% occurred on the day of delivery or within one week, and 53% occurred between one week postpartum and one year after pregnancy. The leading causes of pregnancy-related death overall, mental health conditions, including death by suicide or overdose, 23%. Excessive bleeding, which is called hemorrhage, 14%. Cardiac or coronary conditions, so anything related to the heart, 13%. Infections, and 9%. Blood clots, like in your lungs, 9%. Cardiomyopathy, which is where the heart muscle gets overstrained, 9%. And hypertensive disorders of pregnancy, this is preeclampsia and preeclampsia syndromes, 7%. So, 
huge. The underlying causes, if you are a Black American, then it's going to be a cardiac as your top cause. If you are Hispanic or white, it is a mental health disorder. So suicide, overdose, substance use. And if you are Asian, then hemorrhage was your top cause for death. So this is very important because more than half of these deaths happen up to one year after delivery. So one thing that many of us who are in the field has been very vocal about saying is wrong is the lack of access to maternal health and support after you have the baby. This is where for anybody who's truly pro-life, this is their number one place we should intervene, supporting people when they have children, meaning parental time off so you can recover, support with child care so that you can work without straining yourself, and access to care beyond just one postpartum visit six weeks after you give birth, because that's all that you get right now. Healthcare systems are not designed to treat the postpartum period, which we know is the entire year after you give birth. So whether this is insurance companies or hospital-based systems, we need to make sure we are taking care of pregnant people after they give birth. I think this is further highlighted by the fact that mental health and substance use disorders are the number one cause of maternal death, committing suicide, overdosing, or using substances that lead to your death as the top cause in America. That should not happen. We should have programs and access to people. And so if you are pregnant or postpartum and you're feeling not right, please seek help. Postpartum depression and anxiety are real things. Please do not suffer in silence. If you have friends who are giving birth, please don't just let every question be about the baby. Reach out to them to ask, are you okay? How are you doing? Try to help. And if you're in a position of power and you have employees, how can you support them through this time period? Also for the fact that for Black and Asian people, the top causes are different, cardiac and bleeding. These are things that should be captured and treated in the hospital. And this is a clear demonstration of where racism is impacting maternal care. Because we know that people who are having complaints who have not white skin are not being heard or paid attention to in the same way. And so cardiac-related deaths, bleeding deaths, we need to be paying extra attention to people who are in the hospital and who are pregnant or postpartum. Those deaths happen very close to delivery. So we need to be aware of that bias. And if we practice medicine in any capacity and we take care of pregnant or postpartum patients, we need to make sure that we know this is different. They die at a higher rate from things that should be caught and treated in the hospital. And we need to approach it in this way. Overall, this is startling to me. We know that the United States has high rates of maternal mortality overall and that we need to be making changes to try to decrease pregnancy-related deaths in this country. This is extra terrifying in the current post-Roe world. If we already have a lot of people who die when they're pregnant, what is going to happen when you are forcing birth? All of these things are going to happen at higher rates, and we're going to see new complications from lack of access to prenatal care from people who don't want to be pregnant or can't afford to be pregnant. And we are going to see, I anticipate, mental health conditions 
even increasing more when we take forced birth into account. So hope this highlights some of the latest data. Again, this is all pre-COVID. So we really need to be advocating for that maternal health change. And we really need to be taking care of the mental health of our pregnant and postpartum patients. All right, let's dive into talking about genetics. When I say the word genetics, your genes are what encodes essentially the template for your body making proteins. The genes are the building blocks of our body and they are very, very, very important. Now, chromosomes are what the genes are on. And when you think about our chromosomes, normal male is 46XY, normal female is 46XX. Essentially, though, you have 23 chromosomes and each one is in a pair. And then you have your sex chromosomes, either XX or XY. Now, when we talk about, most people don't really know much about their genes or you don't get them tested unless something is wrong. However, there are times where you should be aware or consider having genetic testing done. So let's start at the very beginning. There is something called a karyotype which is when you go test to make sure you have all of the chromosomes. This is essentially just counting your chromosome number. Do you have 46XX or are you missing part of a chromosome? Are you having a duplication or something called a translocation, which is much more common, which is where you have all of your chromosomes but two of them have slipped spots. So they're kind of in a different spot than they should be. They're still there to encode all the genes that you need. So you are fine. But those chromosomes are in different spots and that can create an issue if you are trying to get pregnant. So one of the first times you might get a karyotype check is if you do not go into puberty at the normal age. So typically we recommend testing for abnormalities. If you've not started a period by age 16 or you've not started a period two years after you've had breast development. So if you still have amenorrhea, you're going to go into the doctor. They're going to see, is there an obstruction in the uterus that could cause you not to be having a period, even though your hormones are working? Is your brain not sending out the right signals? Maybe your body weight is low, you're thin, or you're an athlete, or you're not eating enough food, or you have an eating disorder, or Maybe you just haven't started period yet. Some people are late bloomers. That's not a big deal. Or maybe you have an abnormal chromosome number and that is causing you to potentially not have a period or go into premature ovarian failure. Yes, some people can go into premature ovarian failure or early menopause before they ever have a period. These are typically associated with X chromosome disorders. And so this can be like having just one copy of an X chromosome. That's called Turner syndrome. It can be where you have a repeat sequence on your X chromosome that's called fragile X. You can have a mosaic, which means you, some of your cells are normal and some are missing part of a chromosome. But essentially testing your chromosome number, the karyotype, is something that we recommend doing if you're being evaluated for amenorrhea. So now you don't have periods. Primary amenorrhea means you've never had them, haven't gone through puberty officially all the way. So we're going to make sure your chromosome number is normal. Another time could be if you don't have periods anymore. So your periods were fine and then they just go away. That's called secondary amenorrhea. Or if you have really low ovarian reserve or you're going into premature menopause. So if we know that the cause of those absent or irregular periods is due to having a very low egg count, we are then going to check to see what your chromosomes are and we'll test a karyotype. So 
That is common testing. If suddenly you find out your AMH or your egg count is very low for your age, if you have gone into menopause, then testing a karyotype is standard part of the medical evaluation. Not because there's always something you can do about it. If you have run out of eggs, that is an irreversible process. So to conceive, you would have to use donor eggs. And I've had really, really young patients have to walk that road. But if you're just in the low ovarian reserve, you might be able to intervene and still achieve a pregnancy with your eggs, either by trying to get pregnant sooner or by undergoing fertility preservation. Now, the important thing to know there is that your chromosomes may impact your decision to get pregnant or not. So if you have Turner syndrome, for example, where you only have one X chromosome, there are known risks to pregnancy. You have a higher risk of cardiac complications and something called an abdominal aortic aneurysm, which is a dilation of your abdominal aorta that could rupture and you could bleed internally under the stress of a pregnancy. So there's extra testing that we do to make sure that it's safe for you to be pregnant. You also can pass that along. So we want to talk about risk of passing on something. And this is also a concern with something called fragile X, which is a repeat sequence on the X chromosome. Interestingly, this repeat gets bigger with each generation. And so the risk to your child might be greater than the risk to you. Most women who have fragile X are simply associated with going into ovarian failure early or low ovarian reserve. They may be at risk for something in their elder years called fragile X ataxia syndrome. That's a movement disorder. But in male, because males only have one X chromosome, we are worried about something called, I didn't make the name up, but it's called fragile X mental retardation syndrome, but essentially where we have profound developmental delay because of the lack of functioning X chromosome. And so because it expands, I've had some people who choose to go to IVF so they can test to figure out which embryos inherited the X that has that repeat sequence versus the normal X, or they considered undergoing donor egg or adopting or other ways to pregnancy because that risk was too great. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Apostrophe. With the temperatures starting to warm up, I'm so excited that summer is around the corner and getting ready and looking forward to the summer months. But I know that when I'm outside enjoying nature, I need to pick up supplies to prepare myself for summer adventures. And if you want to get your skin glowing in time for summer, it's time for you to get started with Apostrophe, who is sponsoring this episode. Apostrophe's goal is to help you feel confident in your own skin. So whether you're dealing with breakouts, signs of aging, or acne scarring, Apostrophe will help you love the skin you're in. I personally love that you get access to an expert dermatology team, a tailored treatment plan. It's simple to sign up for your first visit, and there is no in-person appointment or trip to the pharmacy needed. We have a special deal for our audience. Get your first visit for only $5 at apostrophe.com slash A-A-W. When you use our code AAW, that's a savings of $15. This code is only available to our listeners. To get started, just go to apostrophe.com slash AAW and click get started. Then use the code AAW at sign up and you'll get your first visit for only $5. Thank you, Apostrophe, for sponsoring this episode. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Ritual. Did you know that women were excluded from clinical research policy by federal law until 1993? but women belong in scientific research. 
Very essential and Ritual knows this. I choose Ritual Multivitamin every day because it is easy to take and I know that I am getting high quality and traceable ingredients in a clean and bioavailable forms. In fact, Ritual conducted a university-led human clinical trial for their Essential for Women 18 Plus multivitamin to assess its efficacy, and the results showed increase in vitamin D levels by 43% and omega-3 DHA levels by 41% in just 12 weeks. No life shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin that you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month at ritual.com A-A-W. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash A-A-W for 25% off. Thank you, Ritual. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Quince. The weather's getting warmer, so it's time to say goodbye to jackets and sweaters and hello to shorts and tees. I wanted to update my wardrobe for the long haul without spending a fortune. And luckily, I found Quince. Now I've got a lineup of timeless pieces that keep me looking effortlessly chic year after year. The best part is that Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands, but Quince partners directly with top factories, cutting out the cost of the middleman, passing the saving to us, and only working with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices. I personally cannot wait to wear my cute tan linen set this summer. So it's your turn to get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash A-A-W for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash A-A-W to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash A-A-W. Thank you, Quince. Now, this is time where you'll just check your karyotype. Another time would be if you're having miscarriages. So you can have something called that balanced translocation. So again, that is where you have all of the right chromosomes, but two of them have switched spots for some reason. That doesn't really matter in your day-to-day life because you still have all the genes on those chromosomes making the proteins and carrying on with normal function. But Remember that each egg inside your body is 46XX. And when they go to split into the egg that is going to be fertilized, they divide in half and the egg that is fertilized becomes 23X. So if your chromosomes are in the wrong spot, you have a higher chance that they will split abnormally and some of those eggs will not have all the chromosomes they need and you could have a current miscarriage. So a balanced translocation is one of the causes of having repeated early miscarriages. And this could be from either maternal or paternal origin. So if you have had losses, part of that evaluation for why have you had the losses should include a karyotype of both partners. And it's really important to test both partners because this translocation could come from either. I can't tell you how many times I've had the partner with eggs checked, but not the partner with sperm. And it's just really important that we do both. If you carry a balanced translocation, you cannot reduce the chance of miscarriage without doing IVF. So you either have to accept that you have a higher chance or what most people do is they undergo IVF with genetic testing of the embryos what we call PGTSR, which is pre-implantation genetic testing. And I'm going to talk about that more in a minute. 
but for a structural rearrangement or for a translocation. So you can actually test the embryo before you put it in the body. So those are times when you might get your karyotype to see if you have the right number of chromosomes. So either if as a baby, if you have abnormal syndrome-like features, you're not meeting your milestones, if you're not going into puberty or you're running out of eggs early, or if you're having miscarriage. Now, there's also abnormalities within our genes that can cause disease, and these can be inherited in different fashions. What this means is that you essentially have a genetic mutation, a single gene mutation that can cause a disease. Some of these are cancer-causing, so let's use the BRCA gene, BRCA. There's genes that can cause really debilitating syndromes like Huntington's, and some of those don't present into adulthood. And then there's some that present in childhood, which are things like cystic fibrosis or spinal muscular atrophy. When we talk about genetic inheritance, each person, because you have those two different chromosomes, you have two different copies of each gene. So you can have things that require one gene abnormal and you have the disease that's called autosomal dominant. One abnormal gene and you got it. Or it could be autosomal recessive, which means you most inherit both copies of the genes. Autosomal dominant disorders more clearly run in families because there's a 50% chance of having the disease because you only need one copy of it. So if your parents, one parent has the disease, the other does not, each child has a 50% chance of having it if they get that copy from the parent that is affected. These diseases, some of them can be really debilitating. Some of them can cause cancer. There's a lot of controversy in the genetic world if you should test. If you watched your parent die from a crippling, debilitating disease, do you want to know at age 25 that you are going to have the same prognosis, that you would die that same death or you would have that same disability? There's no right or wrong answer there, but that's the question. Now, the argument would be, could you do something different? Would you live life in a different way? Those are all personal decisions. But when it comes to having children, knowing you have the disease could allow us to screen that out of your family. And again, this is with pre-implantation genetic testing or when we test the embryos. Most people who carry family genetic cancer syndromes, we do recommend strongly that they get tested because you can have a very different prognosis if you can screen and detect cancer at an earlier stage versus a later stage. And because people who carry genetic diseases associated with cancer tend to develop either more rare or cancers at earlier different ages, they have completely different screening guidelines. No matter what the disease, if you carry or your partner carries an autosomal dominant disease, you should at least talk to a fertility doctor to be screened or consider screening your embryos. Now, if you have a strong family history of cancer, please, 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 please bring that up to your doctor so we can talk about what is the best thing to do because you probably need to see a genetic counselor and get tested for some of these common genetic cancer syndromes. Now, most people don't have an autosomal dominant disease in their family, right? So your parents are probably fine. You probably would know if you have them. Most people do not know if they carry an autosomal recessive disease because those are silent carriers. So even though they're passed down in the family line, because both parents must have a mutation for a child to be impacted, 
they are overall much harder to detect. If both parents carry the mutation, the chance of a child inheriting the disease, the full-on disease, is 25%, 50% chance the child would be a carrier, and 25% chance the child would inherit both the normal genes and be totally fine. Depending on the severity of the disease, you might make a different choice. This is why we recommend preconception genetic carrier screening. So this is actually a blood test. So a simple blood test where you and your partner both have screening sent off for your blood cells to look at two to 300, depending on the test, of the most common autosomal recessive diseases. If you carry a disease that is different, From the disease your partner carries, it does not matter. Nothing changes. But if you and your partner carry the same disease, you would hear us say, stop trying or start using condoms to prevent. We need to talk to genetics. And depending on the severity of the disease, we might want to do IVF with genetic testing to identify the embryos that have or do not have this disease. Some of these diseases are lethal or terrible. And I don't know about you, but I would much rather save myself the heartbreak of losing a child and focus on going through a process, even if I didn't want to, like IVF, in order to have a healthy baby. But you cannot make decisions on data you do not know. And this is why we recommend preconception genetic carrier testing to everybody before they get pregnant. And I talk about this more in the preconception episode because you can schedule a visit with your doctor before you get pregnant, just to talk about normal testing and what you should know ahead of time. And I highly encourage you do that. Now, the other place we talk about genetics is something called aneuploidy or age-related aneuploidy. This is an abnormal chromosome number. So what does that mean? If you have a normal chromosome number, why are we worried about having an abnormal chromosome number when you get older? Well, What this means is that those eggs, remember I said each egg is actually 46XX when you are born. They are held in the stage of cell division where the chromosomes are in perfect position, ready to split until you ovulate. And I don't know why the body's made this way, but it is how it is. And what happens essentially is that our eggs absorb the wear and tear of our life. And the longer they sit there in that position, the more room for error that exists, meaning The proteins that hold those chromosomes in the perfect spots start to break down, and we have an increased prevalence to those eggs splitting abnormally and resulting in aneuploidy of the eggs. This is absolutely related to age. Very distinctly, the older you are, the increased prevalence of aneuploidy. And this is the sole reason why you have a harder time getting pregnant as you get older, and you have a higher chance of miscarriage as you get older. Yes, at some point you will run out of eggs and then you can't get pregnant. But the reason why you have a harder time getting pregnant at 39 is not that you're out of eggs or have a low egg count. That actually does not impact it. It is that the vast majority of your eggs are genetically abnormal at age 39. And so finding the right egg is so much harder. And that's why that chance of pregnancy per month is going to be 5%. And that is why the chance of miscarriage if you get pregnant is going to be over 30% because it, most abnormal eggs do not fertilize or they miscarry if they start to implant. This is why if you Google IVF success rates, you will see that it is lower as you get older 
Those are for untested embryos. And this is why before we had genetic testing of embryos, people who did IVF tended to have many embryos transferred because if only 25% of all your embryos are genetically normal, then are we really transferring just one of them at a time? It would be much more common to put many of them in and see what happened. And that's when we had such high rates of twins and triplets and more. But PGT, pre-implantation genetic testing, genetic testing of the embryos has totally changed the game. So age is the number one predictor of success with any fertility treatment because of aneuploidy. You cannot reverse this process. Potentially, could you slow it down if you eat a very healthy diet, you have lots of antioxidants, and you avoid toxins? better than somebody who is actively exposing their eggs to toxins. So cigarette smoke is a great example. We know your eggs are more prevalent to be abnormal if you're exposed to cigarette smoke. So many of us won't do IVF in people who smoke because of this direct cause. We make you stop first so that you can have eggs not exposed to this so they don't have as many chromosome breaks or damage. When we do IVF, the number one question I get asked is, well, can you test the eggs? And I cannot test an egg. Even though the egg is the top source of having abnormal genetics, there's no test for egg quality. And that's because an egg is a single cell. And no technology exists right now that will allow me to understand its genetic makeup without destroying it. Would that be a really cool thing if we can do it in the future? Yes. And do I think we will? Probably. But we don't have that anywhere close for now. So we have to fertilize eggs and make them into embryos in order to test them for genetics. Genetic testing of embryos has really changed what we consider as available options for somebody trying to have a family. And that is because it allows us to weed out some of these genetic diseases. It also allows us to test the embryos that are genetically normal. When you do PGT, what you're doing is you're going through IVS. You're taking one month's group of eggs out of the body. You're fertilizing them with sperm and you're growing them to an implantation stage embryo called a blastocyst. A blastocyst is a day five or six embryo. At that stage, embryos are around 300-ish cells and they have been segmented into the cells that will become the placenta called the trophectoderm and the cells that will actually become the baby called the inner cell mass. And we take cells from that placental sample and we send them off. So you take five to eight cells from the placenta, freeze the embryo, and then you send those five to eight cells off. Now, the standard is to just do what we call PGTA, which is pre-implantation genetic testing for aneuploidy. This used to also be called PGS, pre-implantation genetic screening. But essentially, this is when you don't have a disease. I'm not worried about your disease. I'm just testing to see how many embryos are genetically normal when it comes to chromosome number, that is euploid. The proportion of embryos that we anticipate being normal depends on your age. And then what will happen is the embryos are frozen. So once the results return, you can then do what we call a frozen embryo transfer, taking one of those euploid embryos and transferring it. And we see about across the board, a live birth rate of about 60 to 65% which is fantastic and way better than any age-related rate, but it's not 100. So depending on your family goals, 
you may actually go to another cycle and freeze more embryos before you go and you put an embryo inside. So you might change what you do based on how many embryos you get based on your family size. But this has changed the game for older people going through IVF because we're able to know which embryos have the highest potential and then not waste time, money, emotional, physical effort transferring embryos that are not going to make it or that have a high chance of miscarriage. Now, you can do the exact same thing. So test for aneuploidy, but then also test for either a translocation or a single gene disorder. And those are slightly different versions of PGT. So when we do these, PGT-SR is PGT testing normally for aneuploidy, but then you're adding on a test for structural rearrangement. And the PGT-M is you test for aneuploidy, but then you're also testing for a monogenetic disease, single gene disease. Does not matter if it's autosomal recessive or dominant. It just matters that you know you have it and it's isolated to a single gene. So things like schizophrenia and autism, we can't test those. But things like cystic fibrosis, BRCA, Huntington's, we can test those. Now, the process is a little more complex, so you actually have to make a probe. So something that I can just take your blood and run a test and find out if you have it, I can't do that for embryos because I have such small amount of genetic material because I only have five to eight cells from that embryo. So I have to know what I'm looking for. And the way to find it is to make a little fluorescent flag for it. So if you and your partner carry cystic fibrosis, they will take your samples and use your genetic mutations and make little flags for them and then apply those to the embryos. If you carry a genetic disease or if you have a translocation, you will have fewer euploid embryos than you would want to have for your age. And I tell every single person, you may need two cycles. Remember that every month a group of eggs is released from the ovary. When you do IVF, those are the only eggs that you can get to grow. The next month, you have another group that comes out of there. The size of that group is what we call your cohort or your antral follicle count can be a good representation of that. And it's correlated to your ovarian reserve or how many eggs you have. So your doctor should talk to you about based on your age and the expected egg count and plus minus a genetic disease you may carry and its prevalence. This is what I would expect you would need to do, how many cycles to plan for your family. But this testing could totally change your life because imagine not having to go through the heartbreak that comes with having a really sick child. So this is all different types of genetics, but really important. Genetic testing the embryos is overall an extremely safe process. The technology has been around and tested. What we know is that, yes, anytime you manipulate an embryo, whether it's to do a biopsy or to freeze or thaw it, there is a small chance that the embryo does not survive the freeze thaw. We usually quote that chance nationally at about 1% to 2%. So overall, very rare. But that's the risk, meaning there's not a risk of having structural birth defects like a baby without an arm or brain abnormalities or something else from undergoing this testing. It's just from slightly manipulating the embryo, are you able to get it to survive the freeze thaw. And that, again, that comes from freezing it or testing it. For most people, that is worth the information the test gives you. But every single person is different. Every scenario is different. And if you only have one embryo, there's a lot of argument to be had. So have an honest discussion with your doctor 
I'm a huge believer in it. I am probably biased from going through lots of loss myself and getting to the point where I felt like I would rather not be pregnant than have another loss. And putting money and time, time being your most valuable commodity towards transferring embryos that are not going to make it, to me is not the best strategy. I'm a big proponent of it. I'm going to end with something called mosaic. So mosaic embryos are embryos that when you do the genetic testing, remember we're testing five days cells from the placenta, the test comes back abnormal, meaning we actually test every cell. And when you have two different cell lines reported, that's considered a mosaic. Mosaic embryos are subsequently divided into what we call a low-level mosaic, which means most of the cells were normal, but some were not. Or a high-level mosaic, which means most of the cells were abnormal, but some were not. These still have a chance to potentially become a baby, but at much lower rates. So if a euploid embryo has a 60 to 65% chance, a low-level mosaic has a 20 to 30% chance, and a high-level mosaic has a 1 to 5% chance, but those numbers aren't zero. Most clinics will transfer low-level mosaics, but... They usually do them at the very end and after you've exhausted your supply of euploid embryos and after talking to genetics and understanding that you may have extra testing done if you get pregnant. Very few clinics will transfer high-level mosaics because there's such a greater odds that that most prevalent cell type, the abnormal one, is what the embryo is, but you want to talk to your clinic to know. I can speak from experience. I've never transferred a high-level mosaic. I have transferred a couple low-level mosaics. I don't have any children that have been born from those yet. My partner has one. So it's possible, but you want to make sure that you're kind of done going through the egg retrieval process so that you're not wasting time. So that's kind of a last-ditch effort before you say, I'm done with this or I'm going to go on to egg donor. I do think that there will be different ways that we test embryos in the future that we don't have now. And that is exciting. Things using artificial intelligence, looking at embryos, how they divide, testing the fluid that the embryos grow in. I think all of those are extremely exciting things that will be coming in the future and things that will allow us to just interpret embryos better, potentially without having to go through the act of removing some of their cells. So I find that fascinating. All right, before we end, I do want to go into this week's FFS, which is for fertility's sake. This is our weekly Q&A where I answer some of your top questions. You can ask these questions on my Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD every Monday, or you can call in and you can leave them on the voicemail. We do have whole Q&A episodes and if you leave a voicemail, there's a higher chance you'll get your question answered. I get thousands of them on Instagram, but we are pulling them and answering what we can. The voicemail number is 657-229-3672. Again, 657-229-3672. But let's hop in now to some of your questions that you have been asking. So number one is thoughts on laparoscopy for endometriosis check or for tubal blockage before starting IVF. Now, laparoscopy is the only current way to diagnose if you have endometriosis. And if you have severe pain with your periods, pain with intercourse or GI changes, you have some of the symptoms of endometriosis. Undergoing surgery to remove the endometriosis can decrease some inflammation, and that can definitely help pain. And it may help 
improve your chances of getting pregnant naturally if your fallopian tubes are open. However, it's not associated with an improvement in IVF outcomes, nor is it considered part of the normal diagnosis anymore. I do recommend you get a tubal evaluation before you transfer an embryo. For most patients, if you're doing genetic testing of your embryos, I recommend that evaluation after you already have the embryos, but before you go to the frozen embryo transfer. If you are possibly doing a fresh transfer, then you'd need the evaluation ahead of time. To test your fallopian tubes, you can do it with an HSG, an x-ray dye test, or you can do it with a FEMBU, which is a bubble test in the office, or you can do it surgically. Now, no surgery is benign, meaning you have to recover. And there are risks anytime you undergo anesthesia or have surgery. The good thing about it is that if the tube is blocked and dilated called the hydrosalpinx, it could be removed at the time of surgery, which is what is going to have to happen before you have an embryo transferred. Because transferring an embryo in the presence of a hydrosalpinx decreases your chance of getting pregnant by more than 50% regardless of your age. So, I don't really recommend this before doing IVF. I usually make focus number one on getting the embryos and then reevaluate. I tend to screen your fallopian tubes with a less invasive test and then only undergo surgery if you know that you need it. All right, next is, is it best to avoid working out during the two-week wait? I was on letrozole. So when we think about this, what we think about for the most part is during the two-week wait, you're in the luteal phase. So we know that in the luteal phase, your body is a little bit more in that feed and breed. So I do recommend that we work out, but usually this is not my favorite time for high-intensity work. That's the follicular phase where you have that high estrogen-related energy. But this is a great time for some resistance training or light strength training for yoga and for, you know, more light to moderate physical activity. So low impact cycling and walking. This is not when I recommend you go try to get your PR. But overall, if you exercise, you do not have to stop. The only exception would be if you had hyperstimulation of one ovary and it was very big and your doctor was worried about ovarian torsion. This is unlikely to be the case with letrozole for ovulation induction, but it's not impossible. So if your doctor says, oh my gosh, there are too many follicles here, you need to take it easy and don't work out, you should listen. What ovarian torsion is, is twisting of the ovary and it blocks off the blood supply to the ovary and the ovary starts to have necrosis and it could be a surgical emergency. So we really do not want that to happen. So if your doctor says do not exercise, please, please listen. Next is, are at-home sperm analysis kits accurate? Maybe. It depends on the one you use. So you can go get an at-home kit, which is almost like a pregnancy test or a COVID test where you deposit some of your sample on it and it has a threshold and it tells you, are there moving sperm or are there not? So it's kind of a yes, no. Those are pretty accurate, but they're not giving you all the information you need. Meaning just because you get a yes doesn't mean everything's normal. And if you get a no, you should definitely go see a fertility doctor. So that doesn't replace a true semen analysis. There are some brands. So a good example of one is called Fello. That is actually CLIA approved, just like a normal laboratory, like my andrology lab. And it's a mail-in sample. They give you the full semen analysis report. So the volume, the concentration, how they move, and the shape. So those are very accurate and much more reliable. And I think that's a great option. And I even tell my patients to use it if they live in an area 
where it's hard to get a semen analysis done. All right, next is, is IVF the best option when you have a very high AMH and you cannot ovulate with oral medication like letrozole? I think so, yes. Officially, if you cannot safely ovulate with oral ovulation induction agents, then using IVF is going to be a much safer and more effective pathway to baby, both now and if you want children in the future. Sometimes you can try injectable hormones to try to get just an egg to grow, but it is so hard. If you do not respond to oral medications, the odds that you will over-respond to injectable hormones is very high. Over-response can put you at risk for twins, triplets, and more. And so if you cannot respond to oral ovulation induction agents, most fertility doctors are going to strongly counsel that it's time to move on and consider IVF. So at least have the conversation to understand what IVF is so that you can make the best decision in that circumstance. Overall, you have a great odds of success with IVF. So that typically should make you feel better if you find yourself in that position. Diagnosed with silent endometriosis, should I have an immunology consult? For the most part, no. Let's just think about endometriosis like all autoimmune diseases. There are meds out there that can modify your immune system to try to make the disease better. Now, none of these have been shown to help for endometriosis. And even in autoimmune diseases, we are seeing people make lifestyle changes to reduce inflammation and autoimmunity and heal their gut health and maybe not have to be on some of these long-term immunosuppressants. So there's so much that's not known in this world of reproductive immunology. Now, where we consider the reproductive immunology world is when somebody's having lots of miscarriages. So not just for endometriosis, but lots of miscarriages. Again, more of a preventive stake maybe better, but trying to decrease inflammation in a variety of ways may be helpful. Modifying your immune system is really tough in this world because there's some normal immune process that needs to happen in order to allow a placenta to implant. But the take-home message is no. Just for endometriosis, you don't need to see an immunologist or a reproductive immunologist. And if you're having recurrent pregnancy loss, we definitely want to see if there's an autoimmune component to that because that may change things for you. All right, and timing of the flu shot and the COVID booster while trying to conceive. Overall, you should just get them. We anticipate COVID and flu both being bad this year, and so you should go get them. Both of those diseases will make your periods more abnormal than if you just get the vaccine. Can a COVID vaccine change your period? Maybe. The only time we don't want you getting it is when you're within a week of a procedure. So three days before or after an egg retrieval or an embryo transfer. So don't go get it the day before your embryo transfer. But overall, if you're trying to get pregnant, you should be preventing yourself against infectious diseases that we know have worse maternal outcomes when you are pregnant. Flu and COVID clearly demonstrated higher risk of severe maternal complications if you get them when you're pregnant. All right, friends. Well, I hope that helped you. Again, for fertility's sake, I answer some of your questions on Instagram and some of them here at Natalie Crawford MD every Monday. You can also call in and leave a voicemail, 657-229-3672. Thanks, friends. Thank you all for listening to As a Woman. It would mean so much if you could rate, review, and follow the podcast to be notified of new episodes every Sunday. I hope you learned something new, and I hope you share it with someone in your life. 
Be sure to follow along on Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD and check out the YouTube channel Natalie Crawford MD. If you're interested in becoming a patient, you can also follow Fora Fertility. I'm so thrilled to have you here, part of the community that amplifies others as a woman.